We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, guys? Before we get going today, just want to remind you, podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry, along with years of wisdom and experience. Need to go check these guys out. We've got football season just around the corner. They've got golf to tide you over, a little bit of baseball, some NASCAR as always, which is one of their bread and butters. They do a lot of different sports well, but NASCAR is a particular strength of theirs. You need to go check them out at skyboxsportspicks.com. They've got a pass that'll package that will fit your price range. You could go with the daily pass if you want to try it out. That's one day, all day picks for 10 bucks. You can do week-long NASCAR, whatever sports-centric package you want. You could do four-week all-sports package, a week-long all-sports package. It's really kind of up to you. Uh, they've got MLB packages by the week and month as well. I'd recommend the year pass, but you need to go check them out if you're in the wagering game. Uh, give it a little test run before football season. You know, if they make make up make you some money and build up your bankroll before football season, I guarantee you that thing's going to grow with Skybox during football season. And uh, check out the store as well. They've got hats. I'm wearing a Skybox hat right now. Shirts, all kinds of different stuff. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Whenever you do buy something, use the promo code Rippy, R-I-P-P-E-E, and that will get you 20% off any purchase. And it helps out the show because it lets them know that we're sending you over there. So please do that. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Do I sniff a grill corner with Greg later in the week? Perhaps. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. I won't allude to it either way. You need to go check them out. Best place in Oxford. Best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford, incredibly lucky to have it. Right now, if you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter, you get a 15, 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a pack of sausage for 5 bucks. So for a 20 spot, you can go in there and get a hell of a start on your dinner plan. So check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. A little bit different podcast today. I had Chris Harder on. He is a PGA professional that just took a job actually at Urbana Country Club in Urbana, Illinois, right outside of Champaign. You're probably wondering, why in the hell would this guy do this? What does he have to do with anything? He spent a couple years as the pro at Tupelo Country Club. He's Hayden Buckley's swing coach, winner on the Corn Ferry Tour this year. You're a Tupelo native. Um, you know, familiar with Chad Ramey, a lot of the Mississippi golf that's going on. If you subscribe to the newsletter, I'm 
probably the only person insane enough to write about that every week. But we got into some different stuff, kind of Hayden Buckley's rise, his philosophy on the golf game. He worked under Mark Blackburn, a top 50 golf digest rated top 50 instructor over in Huntsville, Alabama. His different philosophies on the swing, his playing career, uh, you know, what to do if you're trying to get in the game, both as a junior and as an amateur, um, some professional golf stuff, just a lot of different interesting talk. Uh, so I appreciate Chris's time. Uh, it ended up being the whole podcast. Like we ended up just going uh, an hour. I had so many questions. I thought it was a great conversation. So I appreciate Chris's time. And without further ado, let's go. Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. All right, we now welcome on a very awesome guest. I'm pumped to have him on. Chris Harder, the newly minted director of golf at Urbana Golf Club in Urbana, Illinois. Spent some time at Tupelo Country Club, uh, Hayden Buckley's coach as well. Spent some time down in Florida at Plantation Bay. Chris, I really appreciate you coming on tonight. This is, uh, I've been excited about this. Thanks, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. For sure. So let's uh let's just start from the top. You uh, you just got a new gig. You're headed up to the Champaign Urbana area to be the director of golf. How did that kind of come about? And you mentioned you spent four or five years in Florida. What made you want to make the move? Well, uh, the club I'm at here is is a pretty special place. Uh, last year I was on a trip in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, at a place called Arbor Links, and uh, ran into a member from the club here. And uh, he told me all the good things that were going on at Urbana Country Club. Uh, the owner of the club is a special guy. His name is Shad Khan. He's the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars and the yeah. Fulham, uh, the Fulham Football Club in, in England. And uh, you know, the Urbana Country Club holds a pretty special place in his heart. Uh, he he owns a business called Flexingate that makes car parts. And um, he started he, he bought the company here in town and has kept it here in town and turned it into like a seven billion dollar corporation. And he, uh, he, he cares a lot about the club. The club was on the verge of financial collapse, like maybe 10, 15 years ago. And he bought it and he has put in a bunch of money to the facility. And when, when people come and will see what we have here, it's not something that you would expect to see in the Champaign-Urbana area. Um, we're just about ready to open, a, they call it like a resort building, but it's an eight bedroom kind of boutique hotel with a bar, a pool. And down in our lower level, we have a spa, salon, fitness area, and then a den, which has some golf simulators, pool tables, just a real cool guys room. Um, and I'm sure the girls will get to use it quite a bit too. But uh, just, just a really great area for the members to stay active and engaged over the winter. So um, this member, um, he, he just turned me on to this place and that opportunity kind of popped up uh, over the winter and uh, just kind of ended up being the being the place I'm at now. So uh, I liked, I liked being in Florida a lot. Um, it was, it was, it was a nice job and it seemed like we had Hayden Buckley on our couch uh, in our extra bedroom quite a bit. So uh, uh, now it'd be nice to uh, return the favor when I'm cold up here in the winter and I'll jump on a plane here and go meet him down in Fort Myers so I can go eat his food. <laughs> that's a, that's a really awesome backstory about that course as well. Cause I was looking at the pictures online and I actually thought the same thing I was like not that I was like stunned by any means but you know given the college town feel or whatever I was like wow this place is incredible so that's that's a really cool backstory and you mentioned Hayden I was talking to him about a month or two ago I don't even remember about what but I asked him how he ended up in Fort Myers and I think you were a big part of that he was like just the convenience he also had a buddy down there but like kind of having his coach in close proximity as well 
um, was a little bit of a draw as well. But I know when he was kind of doing the limbo thing, like you mentioned, he was uh, he was down there a lot uh, on y'all's couch, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. It sounded like. Yeah, yeah, he. Uh, it, it was it was nice to have him down, but uh, I'm sure it'll be nice to go visit his place instead of him staying at mine. Absolutely. So, kind of taking it back to the beginning for you, you played college golf at Austin P. Uh, the mm-hmm. so. Illinois, I guess that's closer to what's home for you, correct? Like that. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up in Indianapolis and mostly in Toledo, Ohio. And so I'm a Midwest guy. And uh, when I was being recruited for college, I'd never really considered Austin P. Or never really knew much about it, to be honest. Um, I was looking at schools in Ohio, like Cincinnati, Dayton, Wright State, University of Toledo, um, Bowling Green, and and whatnot. But we, I worked out at Inverness Club in Toledo. It's a really nice place. I worked on the, as a, one of the cart barn guys and in, uh, in the, in the uh, cart attendants. And one of our members was a guy named John Swigert. And he played at Austin P. He goes, well, you better look into Austin P. You know, and I had a pretty good summer um, going into my senior year where I played in the U.S. Junior Amateur. And I had some nice finishes and events and just kind of sent a note down there to the coach. And, the one thing that appealed to me was it was in the South. You know, I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to play golf all winter. And that's not really the case in <laughs> Northern Tennessee. I mean, it's not that much different than Ohio, but um, it was great when I met Coach LaRue. Uh, you know, it was one of those things he sent me in his office. And he says, well, you know, I want you to join our team because we're going to win a national championship. And, like, I just – I almost busted out laughing because I'm like, no, we're not going to win a national championship at Austin, Austin P. It's just not going to happen. You know, we're a mid-major and shoot. I think in the rankings at the time, we were like 200 when I was looking into the school. I'm like, no, we're not going to win a national championship. But, you know, that was his goal, and that was his dream, and, and that's what he wanted. And I will say that in our four my, – my four years of playing, I was there for five. I registered my freshman year. We won three conference titles, and um, we competed against the best. I mean, I, that was back – and I don't know if you follow a whole lot of college golf, but they have a rule now called the 500 rule where you have to be 500 or better to get to the NCAA tournament. But back in our day, they didn't have that. So all the SEC schools that play against the SEC schools keep their uh, you know strength of schedule high, and they'd all make the national championship. But schools like us would never really get a chance. So uh, it was cool once they finally instituted, like, the basketball rule, like if you win your conference, you're in. And uh, I don't think we ever – we never advanced through the, through the regionals, but we had some pretty good showings. Like the first year when I was there, we went out to um, – to Oregon at Oregon State I think I think we beat Tennessee there um if we didn't it was close I have to go back but I know we beat them some of the days I just know like we were right there with them and it just made me mad that we never really got the chance to play against them and it was um now now that's a little different because they have that 500 rule and a lot of the coaches have different scheduling philosophies but we had a great a great team there and I saw you know what the best part about is we have great friends I mean a lot of my best friends um in fact, one of my one of my friends on the team, Joe Humpson, he actually got me the job in Florida from uh, from uh, when I was in Tupelo. I'd met the owner of the club uh, in Florida, in North Carolina, and you know it's it's amazing at how small golf circles are. You know, they're you know, they say six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in golf it feels like two or three. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so you you get done with your playing career, and I always find it interesting whether you know, what guys want to do, whether they're toying the idea with playing professional golf and getting it a crack or wanting to stay in the industry in some other capacity or getting out altogether. What was kind of the end of your career like for you? And all, all, you all of the, all the combined. So like whatever you said, all of it was combined. So 
I knew I was never good enough to play. Like, I mean, I was like the five man on a team that was ranked in like 80th in the country or whatever. I, I knew I wasn't good enough to play. And I actually got the chipping yips my senior year in college. So I actually graduated college and didn't touch a golf club for about like seven or eight months. And I didn't want, I had some nice job opportunities in the golf business out of college and I didn't want to get into it. I was tired of it. It was my identity. It was who I was. And I wanted to kind of escape it for a little bit. So I actually went to work for a company called Menards. They have them in the Midwest, like here where I'm staying now. Um, they were like Home Depot or Lowe's. And I just went to go be like a front office manager there. You know, I wanted to become a general manager of one of those stores. And I did that for like six months. And nobody there knew I was a golfer. I'd played golf or whatever. I didn't really say anything about it. And then all of a sudden, like one day, I kind of got the urge to go out. I, I didn't even bring my clubs with me to my new my new job. So my dad came down and brought them down. And we went out and played. I think I shot like 40, 30. It took me like nine holes to get back into it. I'm like, man, what am I doing? You know, working here, like I don't, I don't drive a forklift. You're like, that's not who I am. And, uh, and I didn't like retail. And I was like, I got to get back into golf. So uh, that next day I went and saw a professional, uh, a PGA professional at the, I'm trying to think, the, some golf course there in Canby, Indiana. And uh, he goes, well, you just got to get on the PGA website and look. So I went on the PGA website and looked where I could make the most amount of money as an assistant. So I moved to Boca Raton, Florida. And the kind of journey began from there. But I started in Boca Raton, worked there for like four seasons and moved to Huntsville, Alabama. And that's kind of where I would say my real golf career started. Like I learned how to, you know, run like a golf operation in Florida. But I learned how to become a golf professional Alabama. And I ran into um, uh, Rob Clark was my director of golf. So he was kind of like, you know, my my guy that I looked up to. And then all of my members were getting lessons from this guy named Mark Blackburn. And like, it was really making me mad that like I wasn't getting any lessons because all my members are driving to Gunnersville, which is like an hour and a half away or an hour away. And he was taking all my, all my members. So I was, I remember I scheduled a lesson with him and didn't tell him who I was. And then, and then went and took a lesson, uh, got a lesson from him and they wouldn't charge me. And I was mad at that, but I'm like, well, would you mind if I ever just hung around when I've got some downtime and watch you teach? He said, absolutely. And like, from there, it was huge. Like, uh, I got to be, you know, I'd say really good friends with him. And he was like my greatest mentor in the, in the golf business and getting me to where I am now. Um, Rob taught me, you know, lots of awesome things on the merchandising side, but, um, and then how to treat members and run tournaments. But Mark, I think what separates good golf professionals is being able to teach and play the game at a high level. Um, cause you can teach anybody to run a retail operation. I mean, anybody you know, can run the gap and essentially, you know, working in a golf shop is essentially that and maybe running some tournaments, some events. So like our, our job is, and I like being a golf professional. I don't, I love teaching. It's probably the thing I love the most, but I do love running the member guests. And I like to pick out like the newest line and what's the cool new line coming out. Like that appeals to me. I like being like well-rounded in, in that area. But, uh, but Mark was really instrumental to me um, to build credibility and build validation to what I was doing. And uh, I, I probably could say that the work I did with Mark got me the job in Tupelo. So I worked at the Ledges for like six years, and Mark was kind of my mentor there to learn how to teach. And I was like pretty cool for an assistant. You know, I was like 26, 27 years old. Um, at the time, Mark was teaching um, – well, one guy we played a lot with was Robert Carlson. That was when, you know, Robert yeah. was top five in the world. He played with Tiger when Tiger was on one leg at uh, Torrey in that third round. And 
and Robert was awesome. And I got to play a lot of golf with him and I got to watch Mark work with Robert. And then I got to watch Mark work with all of our members. And I was surprised at how similar it really was. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just golf and it's just angles and physics and numbers. But uh, it was awesome watching, watching Mark work and, and, and getting to pick his brain. And there's plenty of times where I'll shoot him a text or call him and just say, dude, I need five minutes. I just need like your, your guidance, your advisement. And he's been awesome. Yeah, and so for those of you out there listening that may not know, Mark Blackburn, I top 50 instructor by Golf Digest at one point. I think he was named 2020 National Teacher of the Year by the PGA. He, or, yeah, he yeah. was. And, and he, he's a teacher for teachers. Like, he teaches all the Titleist Performance Institute where a lot of golf professionals look for guidance and instruction and learning how the body and swing are connected. And Mark does most of those exclusively where – you know, he's a, he's a very well looked up to person in our industry. I think there are a lot of good teachers, but then Mark's really good at teaching teachers, if that makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And so when you mentioned, I thought it was funny, you said in there, you were, you know, you weren't getting a lot of lessons because they were all driving to go see this guy. Like yeah. how common of a move is it to just not tell him who you are and go take a lesson? Was he surprised by that? How did that kind of uh, play out? I don't know. I mean, I just, I, and the thing was, is he was charging like 150 or $175. And this was like, trying to think like 2006. Okay. And in, in, in the middle of Alabama, in Gunnersville, Alabama, there's a British dude, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, how, how is this? Cause I could tell cause all my members had alignment rods in their bag. And this was like way before alignment rods were like a thing. And, um, you know, all these guys had these rods in their bag. I'm like, what, what is he doing? And so finally it just piqued my interest enough to where, you know, I went and, and talked with him. And, and it was cool because, you know, he was, he's always been like on the leading edge of any new technology and he's willing to listen to anyone. So like the two things that I really got from him and this, I know it's going to kind of make me sound, I uh, feel old, but I think he was one of the first people in the country to have a track man. Like, Really? It was very brand new. Uh, it was. It still had to be plugged in. It was. It was pretty cool. And to get to learn all of what the numbers were, what they mean, and then also go back and think about the things that we did, or, or he did that I watched him, and I'm sitting there going, okay, and how we messed up because, like, when you have technology like that, and I, I'll tell you just what it did for me and how I, I won't say it messed me up, but it helped me learn a little bit more was. I always hit draws, so my path was like five or six degrees to the right. Well, I didn't – I just wanted to hit zero. So I, I kept thinking that zero was perfect. And I think at the time, I think a lot of us kind of thought zero was perfect. And so whenever we're teaching people, we just try to get their swings closer to zero. And, um, and then to me, that ended up messing me up because then I didn't know if the ball was going to cut a little bit or draw a little bit. But I always knew before it was going to draw. So what I'm big into now – what is playing a predictable curve and i know like it'll drive hayden nuts because like i keep talking to him about it is we put an alignment rod with a pool noodle in front of us and i want him every day we talk about our foundations like every day in practice rounds or when he's when he's out hitting balls in the range he always puts the stick out there in front and starts a ball left of it and he's i think he's number two in ball striking on the corn Ferry tour overall ball striking and I think he's really started to build a sense of like what what our club golfers are looking for. I hate that word consistency. I hate it because like nobody wants to be consistent. Like if I, if you're saying you're like, you were telling me earlier, like, yeah, I'm kind of like the 80 shooter. Like if I told you I can coach you up and you could shoot 80 every day, would you be happy? Absolutely not. I don't want to shoot 80. I want to be better. 
So I don't think people want to be consistent. I, I like to use the word predictable. So like, you know, your ball is predictable. You know what it's going to do because then it helps you score better. And when you're out there chasing zeros on TrackMan, like I didn't feel like a couple years into it, I didn't get any better. Probably got a little worse, but I, and I wasn't as predictable. So uh, um, the other thing that I got from Mark too, with the TrackMan being one, was uh, Aimpoint. So like he was one of the first. I don't think Mark Sweeney is the guy who invented Aimpoint. He came and met us, and we did a clinic at the Ledges. We were. I remember sitting in a hotel bar at the embassy suites in Huntsville and he's using this napkin to tell me how much every putt is going to break. And I'm sitting here going, how, how the, how the hell is this guy going to tell me to the inch how much every putt breaks? And damn, he did. And it was unbelievable. So like, those were the two things, Mark, I, I couldn't believe Mark Blackburn would have this guy call him up and say, Hey dude, I can teach you how to read every putt inside of 20 feet. And I can tell you to the inch how much every putt breaks. And Mark just didn't hang up the phone on him. You know, and to me, like, if somebody did that to me now, I'd just say, yeah, whatever, you know, go get lost. But, like, to have the ability to at least hear somebody out um, like that, because a lot of times that sounds like snake oily, but now you look at who's using Aimpoint and, and as the, as the um, as, not, I can't say technology, but as the idea has developed and how much more simple the idea of Aimpoint has become to where I can teach it to kids that are eight, nine years old instead of, before, when you had to use it, you had to have a book, and you, you had to know what a 30-degree angle was or a 20-degree angle and all that. But now we just use our fingers, and that's pretty cool. And, you know, I, I, the one thing I always try to do in my, my life now and my business now is never try to write somebody off that I would probably have written off because, like, you know, you might miss an opportunity, like being one of the first people in the world to see what Aimpoint was. Yeah, that's a very great way to put that, right? Because I was about to add on is, like, there's a certain element of, like, you know, at that point, he's Mark Blackburn. Like that name carries a lot of weight within the industry, and some guys just randomly calling him up about some new, you know, putting philosophy or whatever the case may be. And he, like you mentioned, he doesn't hang up the phone. So, kind of aside from the the open mindedness and and some of the things you mentioned that you got from him, I find it interesting. So you played, you were a good player, and you know, contrary to popularity, that's not always the case with teaching pros, right? But you grew up, you were a good junior player, yeah. you were a good college player. How did you? I mean, I, I can get it. I can get it around. Like I played last weekend, shot sixty-eight, and I hadn't played in a month, which was fun. Um, <laughs> and I bogey. I, I bogeyed the last hole. It made me mad. I was the first. That was the first. Like I think it was the first or second time I played with the members here, so it was nice to get a good round in. But I mean, I can play a little bit. I used to play in some section events, and, and when I was in Alabama, I actually played a lot. And before I had kids, and before I was the guy who had to make all the decisions, I played a lot. And um, I had some success winning some section events. But what I hope it can do for me is when I am coaching Hayden or I am coaching the high school kids is to have some sort of validation or some sort of like, yeah, I mean, I kind of have felt that before. Or, you know, I understand like this week Hayden had a, a tough week on one hole in particular um, where he made three double bogeys on this par three and he ripped it in the water like three times like, I mean, it stinks, and I don't – I mean, but I get it because I've played holes before that. When I look at it, I just don't like it. So, I, I get what he's saying, and I hope that he can understand. That way, when I do tell him something that he may not like, he listens, you know, and, and that's that, that's important to me. I mean, I know that I'll never – I've never been in a playoff in a Corn Ferry Tour event. I know I never will. Um, but, but, like, I've been, in, I've been in a playoff at the U.S. Junior Am to get into the, into the match play. Like, it's – at a certain point, I always wonder, too, it's a good one. In the U.S., 
is it more pressure than any pressure you felt before? Like what are the levels of pressure? I, I've never understood that. I always feel like if you're under pressure, you're under pressure. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, I've been under pressure enough in the game to know what happens and how your hands get a little, little, you know, wiggly and how all of a sudden your club head speed increases a little bit and then how you, how you deal with that. But, um, you know, I've, I've had some success in that area um, under pressure, and it's nice to see that Hayden, you know, uh, the kid I'm coaching, is, has success as well. And he, he, he has a cool saying. He calls it seeing the light. He goes, you know, I don't see the light. And, um, and, and I think, what was it, too? Uh, was it one of those in Seinfeld the one time the guy goes, yeah, it's not a lie if you believe it. You know, if you say something enough, you can just talk into existence. So, you know, Hayden doesn't see the light. He doesn't get nervous. Um, uh, so like it, it's cool to know like yeah I've played a little bit nothing to like what they've done or whatever but I can do it and, and I think now I'm not ashamed to ask for shots when I play with Hayden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but there, that makes sense. There's a certain validation of you know you being a college player and can break par and things like that as opposed to being like a nine. That way when he doesn't mm -hmm. like something you tell him, it's like well you know. I guess there's less a chance of a seed of doubt, right? I guess it's kind of what you're getting at a little bit. Yeah, but but also too, I think I've I've hung out with him long enough too to where like, I mean, we almost speak the same language. He knows what I'm going to say before I say it, and I think that's probably the highest compliment I could pay him. Um, is like I think when you're looking at a football team and you know you spend all the time in the in the room with the quarterback and you're sitting in a film room and. You're sitting there watching what the safeties are doing, saying, okay, now when they're playing a cover two, you might want to look towards the middle of the field. You know, and all of a sudden it becomes inherent with the quarterback on what to do. And I think that's a sign of a good coach. And, and I, I feel like Hayden's got to the point now where I'm not going to say I can't teach him anymore, but he knows probably what I'm going to say before I say it. And, and I, think, I think that's awesome. Uh, I really do. Because, I mean, his, his predictability from week to week and hitting the golf ball I'm, I know it in my heart. I mean, I've seen guys at the highest level. It's top 20, top 25 in the world hitting it. He's that good at it. So I, I just know that, you know, I think what's built him there is we hadn't changed. I mean, we've changed a lot. And in fact, we've probably talked about one thing for close to 10 years. But it, it's doing like it's, – it's doing the same thing over and over to get you that more predictable result. It's not this week we're going to – you know, aim a little bit more right. We're going to turn the face down. This is what we're going to do this week. Like, we've never done that kind of stuff. Now, you know, like, was trying to think, when's the last time we really worked on something, something? It was probably last year, at the end of the year, um, on the Corn Ferry. It was, uh, it was at, trying try to think, it was at Orange County. He was starting hitting this, like, low little squirty ball on the right. And so we gave him a couple things to work on, and he worked on that. But, I mean, other than that, like, he doesn't – like, he just doesn't miss a whole lot. Right. So, for yourself, as someone who played the game in college high level enough to where you kind of know the swing, how did it evolve when you became a teacher? Like, does your – like, did you learn from Mark a, a philosophy on teaching the golf swing? And how different was that from what you thought about it as a player? Yeah. So, Mark taught me that – the body kind of controls what the golf club does. And like, I'd always just watch the golf club and then try to figure out how to make it move different spots. But like, I see it more on my lesson tee now, especially when I was in Florida, I worked with a lot of senior golfers and like, they may have had like, and I can pick it out now. Like you can pick it out as you start doing this. Like, Oh, you know, what'd you mess up in your right knee? You know, like, Oh yeah. You know, I told my ACL or, you know, I got a, a torn meniscus and all of a sudden you see that right knee flaring out. 
And I say, well, do you have back pain? Yeah, I got back pain. Okay, well, this is why. And then you can maybe work around that. I think the body swing connection is what I got from Mark the most. And then learning TrackMan and learning uh, 3D stuff like KVest and learning how bends and tilts influence the golf swing. Uh, I really got that from Mark. But I'll tell you, I, I've had a, a little bit of shift and change in the last few years about teaching and coaching and getting less into like teaching, teaching and more into coaching. And teaching people like Scott Fawcett and Mark Brody, like reading, I don't read a ton of books. Like I really like to watch, I'd rather watch a video or something than read a book. But I read Mark Sweeney's book, um, Every Shot Counts, in a day. I remember that day, the first day it came out in Tupelo, I sat in my bed and I read the whole thing from cover to cover. And I'm like, damn, like that was awesome. And it totally changed my entire perspective in a day on watching golf on television. So if you're listening to this and you haven't read that book, like 100% get that book. It's called Every Shot Counts by Mark Brody. And it talks basically like a little bit of statistical breakdown of the golf swing or the golf game, not the golf swing, but the golf game. And talking about predictabilities, it's kind of like money ball for golf. And, and then there's a guy out there named Scott Fawcett, who if you, if you don't know who Scott is, he's a pretty opinionated guy. And I think for the most part, he's right uh, on a lot of things. But Scott has, a, has an app called Decade, and he sends out um, every week, you know, PGA Tour, Corn Ferry guys, a, a game plan of how to play the golf course and what, what are, what's the best target off the tee to maximize your opportunities, what statistically gives you the, the best chance to get strokes gained. And, uh, and, when, and that, I've really got into that area more, especially as Hayden has kind of developed because, like, when I'm coaching a guy, like I was giving a guy a lesson the other day, and he's like, yeah, like I shoot 95 to 100. And I'm like, okay, well, this guy should shoot way better than 95 to 100. Um, you know, I could get him to go from 95 to 85 pretty quick, you know, but I can't get Hayden to go from 69 average to 54 average. Like, you know, those, those increments are so much tinier at the higher levels that if I can get Hayden to get three-tenths of a stroke better, all of a sudden he goes from 40th and scoring average to 10th, you know, and something like that. And we noticed, you know, with him trends in college – um, where he played particularly uh, par threes particularly poor, and then in Canada he played particularly or par threes uh, pretty poor as well. And then he also like we could break it down even more. Like he, I think all of his double bogeys in Canada on par threes were to back flags, missing long to back flags. So like when you're sitting there going, okay, well there's a big you know correlation here, and correlation does not always equal causation, but he's over the green on par threes and he makes doubles. Well, I mean let's don't do that, you know, and three, 3.0 average. I think when, when Hayden was in college, we, I kept saying, dude, if you just average three Oh on the par threes, you fourth in scoring in college in division one, you're the fourth best player on par threes. Like that's awesome. And on the PGA tour, even if you're averaging 3.0 on the PGA tour, you're gaining strokes relation to the field. So, um, you know, last year, our theme was like, we called it Hayden Buckley 3.0. So the goal that year was to try to average 3.0 in his first year on the Corn Ferry Tour, and he did it. And, and I, I think that, you know, right there was like, okay, well, he just picked up like two-tenths of a stroke. For me, that's huge. And I think a lot of it's just making him aware of it because a lot of times they're in the fight and they're in the fire, and they don't, they don't understand that they're making the same mistakes over and over again. So I just have to be there to remind him of those things. And sometimes I know, like, I know he listens to me and I know he hears it, but he doesn't like it. A lot of times, like when I'm talking to him, he just don't say anything. So I understand that he doesn't 
he's not happy with what I'm telling him, but I think he respects my opinion enough to take it to heart. Yeah, that 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 certainly certainly makes sense. And I you know, I mean you can relate to that in any aspect of life to some degree, right? Just taking direction and you may not like it, but if it's you know a good teacher, a good mentor, you kinda of understand that they know what they're talking about. So mm-hmm. you moved from Alabama to Tupelo. And I'm just curious, mm-hmm. you got there in March of 2013, and that was, like, so I'm 26. So I was about at a senior year through high school at that point. And at that time, Tupelo High was, you know, it in high school golf. I mean, I know some of these guys were here before you were there, but it was, you know, like your Johnson, Austin Rose, dudes like that. Noah West, I think, played the five when I was in 10th grade, and he played four years at Ole Miss. Like, the shit was just kind of absurd, right? So, yeah. Like, and I, I now like my niche doing this like podcast newsletter thing other than the old Miss centric stuff is like being the one very, very aggressively average kid around the age of all these kids that are now, now going on to do big shit in amateur and yeah. well, in some cases professional golf. And I'm just curious, I mean, Mississippi's not that big of a state, but they played like 38 Corn Ferry events this year. Four mm-hmm. wins have come by kids from Mississippi, three yeah. guys from Mississippi and one it did the Level of junior slash amateur, I'll throw because you'll throw college in there. Golf surprise you at all when you got there? Uh, no, I loved it. It doesn't surprise me. Number one, the pro before me, Jim Rose. I mean, his son obviously was a great player, and and I think there was just a culture of like, you know, competitive, good junior golf. And the the best part about it was is there were so many of them. I, right. When, when I was there, we had a a slat wall that we weren't using in the golf shop, so we chalkboard painted it, and we. I wrote all the kids' names down in order of who I thought was the best to the worst. And I'd write them on that board so everybody could see where I thought they were ranked. And they'd all play each other so they could move their names up and down that board. And, and the, the amount of competitiveness just raised everybody's level. I mean, there was like 30 kids that were like on a high school team. They go play five, but I mean, they were deep. And these they, they got these kids coming in sixth, seventh grade, and and they wanted to play. They wanted to play the high school guys. And and then they also – the club made a really good uh, decision. They built a par-3 course uh, right behind the driving range. So, like, par-3 course, we could send all the kids down there. They could get run around, yell, scream, and they learn how to score, you know, learn how to score their golf ball. And, and just the culture of the junior golf there was awesome. And I think, too, in the South, I mean, baseball is a pretty big sport. So, when you get these kids – and it was like Hayden. Like, he was a baseball player, and – like, I love getting athletes. And if these kids can hit a baseball, they sure as hell can hit a golf ball. And maybe some of them start finding out, like, man, I'm just kind of getting burnt out on baseball, but I really like golf. And I got a couple buddies here I can spend every day with. And then we can go jump in the pool for a little bit. I mean, it's a pretty good life. I mean, it's kind of what I did when I grew up. I stopped playing baseball when I was 12 and 13. I played on a travel team. Then we moved out to a pretty nice country club in Toledo called Stone Oak. And, and I had a couple really good friends, uh, like Peter Reed and Shane Nopkin. And, we play. We weren't allowed to play till two o'clock back in those days. So we, our, our ass would be on the range at eight o'clock in the morning. In fact, we were on the range so much they made us go to the back end of the range because they didn't want us hitting balls with all the members all the time. So you know we were we went to the back of the range and hit balls all the time, and then we go jump in the pool. Then we go tee it at two o'clock and we played all dark. And, and they had that kind of culture there, and, and that's something I hope to kind of bring here to Urbana is. Um, is getting the junior golf program going. I got a six-year-old now, and I want him to kind of, you know, get a little taste of what I what I had growing up because it was such a good it was such a good upbringing. But you know, credit I, I don't deserve any of the credit for what's happening there in Tupelo. Jim Rose did an awesome job, and, and probably 
um, the members. I mean, the members of the club were supportive. They had the Pros of Tomorrow tournament there forever. And I think a lot of the credit goes to the membership, knowing that junior golf is important rather than just kind of sweeping out of the rug or who are these kids out in front of me slowing me down kind of thing. They, the members at Tupelo never had that. They always encourage the kids to play, and, um, and, and they're reaping the rewards of that now. And it was, it was statewide some, too, and I think it's a credit to, to – I know you don't want to take any credit, but Jim Rose, the teachers. I mean, you had the Chad Darby's and John Howells of the world, and that's – John Howell, you know, yeah. Jack Nam, Wilson Fur, Cecil Wagner, all those kids coming up from the Jackson area, Charlie Miller as well. And it, it, it was it, – you know, they've all turned out to do great things. I mean, that didn't even count some of the kids over at West Point as well. And so it's – Yeah, yeah, VJ, VJ Trulio, man, just – I mean, his, his kid – I remember his kid playing the pros of tomorrow, and he, would, he didn't come up to my belt. And now he's up competing in USAMs and winning the winning the Mississippi Am. So if he's hearing this, good job, Cohen. Good job, VJ, man. Like, I, I do think there's probably a little bit more good instruction in Mississippi than there than people kind of know, and not just in good instruction, but I still think it comes from the parents. Like it does. It comes from the parents. It comes from the culture. And um, yeah, well, in Florida, you'd think there'd be more good junior golf in Florida, but I'm telling you, there's not. I think a lot of it is very like very senior dominant, um, very retired folk dominant, where there's not a lot of kids, like even in where we were, there was not a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And um, it, I think I think you see a lot, you see it a lot in Mississippi where the, the country club was kind of the focal point of the community. And so the families spend a lot of time there, they dump their kids off there. And it's just, it's just a part of the life. It's just a part of the lifestyle. And, and and again, it's the membership that makes it happen because they're not, you know, getting upset that the kids are on the course or the kids are yelling on the par three course kind of thing. Um, they love it. Yeah, and the Tupelo Country Club is also a fantastic golf course for someone to learn how to play golf on too. Like it's tough but fair. Like I, that's one of my favorite courses in the state. That's uh, it's a great place to kind of grow up playing golf. And so you get there in thirteen. Mm-hmm. At that point, I guess Buckley's a Hayden's a junior. At that yeah, point. I'm trying to think. Used to be a sophomore or junior. Um, not can't remember a whole lot, but I do. Maybe it may have been a junior. And um, I mean, the one the one kind of story that I always will tell is I remember we're playing on the ninth hole and we're playing a pretty close match. And he rips one out of bounds. He hooks it way left, and and um, and then he tries to tell me he's trying to cut it. And I'm like, how the hell are you trying to cut it? Like you can't. Like you physically can't cut the golf ball. I mean. His path when I got my track man out when I was there was like 10 to 15 degrees right with the driver. It's like, I mean, it ain't going to cut, buddy. Like, I don't, I don't care what you're going to do. It, you're not going to hit a cut. And so, like, I remember because it burned him because I ended up beating him. And then, you know, later, later he walked back in, like, maybe like a day or two later. He goes, well, how, how do I cut it? <laughs> and, then, and then that's kind of like where it started. You know, it's like because I could tell it burned him. And, and he still does that now. Like, he's not like – He's not overly vocal, and he lets things, like, sit with him probably a little too much without telling anybody. But I, I know it burned him, and then he said, well, how do I cut it? So then we went back out, and, uh, and we started working at it. And, and from that day to what we work on now, it's not entirely different. And that's, that's the crazy part about what people don't understand of how can I get from being a good golfer to a great golfer. It's just doing that one thing really well. It's interesting too because you mentioned him being the base a baseball player growing up, and 
I don't know if late bloomer is necessarily the right word, but just in junior golf now in order to get recruited at a higher level, right? I mean, you got to start playing not only locally, but like AJGA stuff, national mm-hmm. circuit at a fairly young age, nothing insane. I mean, at the earlier, the better it helps. And that wasn't him, right? Because he played baseball up until his sophomore year and all that. Just at what point did you realize you had something and – did you kind of like formulate a strategy for him to catch up from a notoriety standpoint, not the golf swing, but just how to get recruited? No. What was that? Kind you know, of? like to be honest, like, I mean, I knew he was going to be a good, a good college golfer. I mean, nobody knows what somebody's potential is. I'm still waiting for Hayden to level off in his potential. I mean, he's still going up now, obviously like once you get to a certain point, it's not like it's not happening at that same rate. It's, you know, a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller. But when, um, when, when I started working with Hayden, I was like, okay, this kid could be like a serviceable division one golfer. I'm starting to think you go Austin P would be a good, a good spot for him. I mean, I know he wanted to play in the sec, but um, the coaches at Ole Miss and state were like, yeah, we're kind of full man. Like, and I knew he was good enough. I mean, he finished second in the state championship. It wasn't like he was a chop. And I mean, in Mississippi, like you're saying, he's got good junior golfers. And I'm sitting there going, well, this kid just finished second and he beat a lot of good players. So I called my coach Austin P and said, um, hey, like I got this kid, you know, he's a good player and I don't know if he's going to play for you right away, maybe even the first two years, but I guarantee you that he's going to work hard enough to get in your top five the last few years. And, and we had two kids on my college team. I had like, we had a kid named Ryan Strickland who was a fantastic ball striker and he was real gritty. And, you know, you, he'd always say, oh, I'll hit my three-wood past your driver. He was that kind of like, you know, kind of bravado kind of guy. And then we had a guy named Joe Humston who was very, very quiet, very determined and worked really hard. I was like, well, this kid is like Hayden's like the perfect mix of these two kids. Like um, he, he has like the swagger of, of Ryan Strickland, although it wasn't like as overt as Ryan was, but he had the quiet like determination and wanting to cut your head off, but not like mean about it. I mean, Joe, Joe was always like, he was a competitor and a grinder and he would smile as he buried you. And that's kind of the way I felt like Hayden was. And I was like, you know, he's the perfect mix of like, you know, Ryan and Joe. And that's why I told LaRue, he goes, well, damn, if that's the case, I want him. And I said, I think you do want him. And and it ended up working out. I mean, Hayden had a pretty good, even a much better freshman year than I thought. I think he had a little bit hard time transitioning from the, the first semester of his freshman year where he's a long way from home and and then he gets to college and I think he knew that he wasn't like as accomplished as some of those guys were and I think he kind of felt like he was the low man on the totem pole and he he played like it and then as he started realizing like man like you know we're all on the same team like these guys really aren't that much better than I am then all of a sudden his confidence started growing and I think too just the swing changes started taking shape and and the other thing was, is, I mean, the kid's like 18 years old, his body's changing and he all of a sudden got bigger and stronger and he was able to do what we wanted him to do. And I just got better and better and better. And I think he was one of the top two or three players in the fall, or I mean, I'm sorry, in the spring, his freshman year, and then coach didn't take him to the SEC championship, which I still tell coach that was a bad decision. He took a senior um, over Hayden. I was like, Hayden had like one of the best scoring averages. Like, how do you leave him at home? He goes, well, I just wanted a guy, you know, had some experience. And I think that was a big mistake. And I think, but you know what though, in the long term, it probably helped Hayden in the fact that it probably put another chip on his shoulder. And I think he always responds well to that. 
think, you know, you always have to find what drives your, your students or, you know, drives the people you're working for, even in business. Like some people really like praise. Some people really like to be challenged and some people like to be left alone. But I, the more I, I've gotten to know Hayden is he really likes a challenge. You know, if you tell him this is what Ryan, this is why it reminded me a lot of Ryan Strickland back in college is like, you tell Ryan, he can't do something. He's going to do it. And I think Hayden's the same way. And I, I, in a little text after his first round here in Chicago. Um, I don't I haven't really told anybody, but he played terrible in Chicago. And I text him 21 fun things to do in Chicago over the weekend because <laughs> he was going to miss the cut. And I know that lit a fire. I think he shot like seven under that second round. And then he said, no, I'm not. And the text back when he was done. And it was like, you know, like, I know that drives him. And so like, I have to use it selectively because I don't want to keep going to the well. But um, you know, I think you, as, as a good coach or just, you got to know how your person ticks a little bit and, and Hayden, Hayden likes a little bit of those challenges, but you can't go to the well too much. Otherwise it kind of loses its effect. You got to be a pretty good salesman too. Cause you did convince an SEC golf coach to take a kid and I know whatever they want to call it percentage of scholarship. Hayden was like, it was a formality. I was a walk on, but you didn't convince him to take a kid without hitting a shot. Like, and you know, yeah. the way you analogized it now, I could certainly see why. And so as he kind of gets better through his college career, the success starts to come. And I know you weren't necessarily surprised by it, but at what point did you guys, if at all, kind of have start conversations about let's, you know, you could do this for a living because that, for what I understand, you were dead on with the SEC championship thing. I definitely, that definitely sounds from, you know, I get motivated him a ton because I think he had buddies there too, that he still wanted to prove it to, and he didn't get the yeah. opportunity to do it. But as the success comes, at what point do you guys start talking about, let's, let's try to do this for a living? I don't think we ever had that talk. You know, it's kind of funny to even think about, but it just kind of happened because he was good. I mean, like, you know, I mean, there, there are guys that, you know, try to play golf after college and, and they're just not there. And I would say though, there's always exceptions to that rule where somebody, you know, finds themselves or all of a sudden excels maybe outside of a team setting and, and just does better. And that's the hard part about golf. Like you're saying, there's some late bloomers out there. I mean, when I, when I played, I played in the OVC, which, you know, not many people could name three schools in the OVC, right? But when I was there, we had a guy that played in a Walker Cup, Robert Dinwiddie. We had um Josh Teeter right yeah. he's been a, a grinder on tour for a long time and Scott Stallings I played my last college golf round with Scott Stallings and then I, I beat him so every time I go see him in North Carolina and I always he always tells me like oh how many shots you give me last time we played you beat me so um uh you know it's funny so like it, we we had good players Danny Willett went to Jacksonville State that's yeah. our conference he, he won the Masters so I mean there are good golfers everywhere so like when Hayden started, when I knew he could do it was his senior year. Um, he had always got to like these plateau, like he'd reach a level, then he wouldn't get it, then he would get it. Then all of a sudden he started winning lots his senior year. And I, uh, we talked about earlier about seeing the light, right? Like he doesn't see the light, but when he gets in that position to win, he wins. Like he's a winner. There's, there are people who are not winners and then there are winners. And, and Hayden, Hayden has that knack for getting it done. And um, when I started realizing, I remember he came to visit me in Florida after he played in the New Year's Eve or the New Year's Invitational, which is a pretty big amateur event in Tampa, St. Pete area. And he had won it back to back. And like that to me, and, and he had had a good fall and he had, a, he ended up having a really good spring after that. But like 
right there, I'm like, okay, well, this guy's good enough. But we never had to have a talk about it. We just had to start planning out his 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 career path. Well, what do you sign up for Q school? That kind of stuff. Because um, you know, Hayden was good enough, but he never had the agent that like you know, Brayden Thornberry was really good, won the NCAAs. Like he 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 he's awesome. He deserves all of that. But Hayden didn't get like that kind of support like Brayden would. He might you know had an agent helping him say along the way. Now here's what you need to do. You need to take this step and that step. And Hayden's dad did all that work. And, um, you know, conversing with Hayden's dad, well, should we play in this tournament? Should we play in that tournament? When's that? When's this Q school? When's that? Um, you know, it, it's, it was more, more or less like it was just a continuation on what he did. We never had to have a sit down conversation about turning pro. Like it was inevitable at a certain point. I mean, when you're, you know, what, well, I don't know if he's honorable mention all American, but he was some all American and, you know, something as all SEC I and mean, he was up there. So like, when you're at that level, yeah, man, you're going to give it a try. Uh, so um, he ended up doing – I remember he went out to Arizona and qualified for the Canadian Tour. He shot a really good round the first round. I'm like, dude, he's got it. He's on his way. He had a great, great run in Canada. He, um, I think he learned lots of valuable lessons in Canada. And uh, I think he lost out on a fifth spot, which is pretty important there in the last tournament. I think, uh, I think there was one guy who could pass him, and that guy had to win, and Hayden had to finish outside of the top 20. And that happened. I mean, but, you know, I think Hayden started learning well, how valuable every shot and every point is. Um, so that's why I keep telling him when he's, you know, T30th, I just keep telling him, dude, you got to keep fighting. You never know how important $500 is. Absolutely right about that. And I'm glad you brought that last part up, though, about the when you turn pro, everyone thinks it's, it's the golf that's hard. And that is obviously the case. But it's, it's mapping out what the hell to do and how to do it and when to do it. Because you mentioned the other side of that coin. So I did a story a couple weeks ago on Wilson Furr. He showed up as an alternate to some U.S. Open sectional, just kind of pulls some random dude out of the crowd seven mm-hmm. holes in after he gets in and was like, here, carry this bag for 27 holes. Yeah. And, but he's the other side of the coin. So, like, he got an agent and they're kind of handling everything for him. But he was mm-hmm. the first one to tell me it can be done both ways. It just makes it easier, but you got to have a, a, a lot of juice and a lot of notoriety. Like you mentioned, the, the Brayton Thornberries are the guys you, I mean, you know are superstars coming out of college golf. And so yeah. it translates to the golf side too, right, in terms of opportunities. Like, you know, Hayden gets into Sanderson, oh. but, you know, the, the, a couple of those other guys, Thornberry got into two, three PGA Tour events coming out like that. Yeah. That's and, harder as well. And I imagine organizing that is really difficult sometimes. It is. It is. But And I will I'll go to the grave saying I think it's good that Hayden doesn't get those opportunities because I think he needs to, to earn them. Um, I, I think it, it, it's, it, it, it hits different when you, when you earn it and you do it yourself. And Hayden qualified for the Honda. I mean, I mean that's probably the hardest Monday qualifier there is out there. And, and he damn near did it one year. I think he missed it by one or lost in a playoff. I can't remember. And then got in the next year. Like, I, I, he's never been given anything. And I don't think he should start to be given anything now because I think he would feel like he wasn't deserving of it. Um, he did get the one sponsor invite. I think that was his first tur- pro tournament was maybe Sanderson, if I remember. He made the cut and did all right. In fact, I think um, I got the flag. Off. I know we're not on video here, but I think I have. I just moved here, but that's the flag for the Sanderson. So oh, it was first due to her event. Um, I got to get unpacked here at this house. But, you know, to see, you know, he, 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 he deserves more than he's got, but he, he needs to earn everything that he gets. Um, I, 
you're right. I mean, I think the unsung hero is probably Hayden's dad. I mean, it's like, and his mom's a travel agent. It's, it's all hands on deck. I mean, his family has done such a good job of leaving the golf to Hayden and not, cause I'm sure some of these guys are kind of doing it solo. You know, they're the ones that are doing their travel agent. They're the ones who have to sign up for these tournaments. And, and I mean, Hayden's dad keeps a notepad of every person in their corn fairy points for like the whole year. It's crazy at how he how detailed he is on that. He knows what that guy did and what this guy needs to do to pass him. And I'm like, dude, they have a PJ Tour website that tells you all that stuff. But <laughs> but but he loves he loves writing that stuff down. And uh, you know, so it does take like you're saying. I mean, it. I don't know how any person could do it themselves. You know, as a golfer. I mean, it. I, I spent the week with with um, with Hayden in Huntsville, where I used to work at the Ledges. They had a Corn Ferry Tour event there this year. So I spent the week with him going through practice rounds and watched him play a couple rounds before I moved up this way. And like, it's exhausting. Like the practice rounds out there are awful. It's like a four hour, nine hole thing. You can't really practice. I mean, it's hard to actually get work done out there. So this week on the corn Ferry tour, you just finished Maine and they have a week off before they go to Colorado. Like he needed this week off, but um, you know, it, it is a grind, man. Like, those guys, it's so hard to practice stuff. I mean, because they're out there playing every week. It's There's not a whole lot of time off, uh, especially for Hayden because he missed the first 10 weeks of the year. You know, it's like Braden Thornberry. I think he took the week off last week. It's like, you know, Hayden didn't have that luxury because, you know, he missed the first 10 events. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that. So they, the Huntsville week, I live literally across the street from the, the Arlington event they had the week before. Mm-hmm. And so I went out there and followed him around for a couple of days. And, like, he was walking. I mean, there's no ropes and shit at, like, to, like the same way. Yeah. So I was, like, walking by the parking lot, and he was in this white Mustang for a rental car. And I was like, what the hell are you doing in a white Mustang? He's like, well, I missed a cut last week, and they didn't have any cars ready, so I had to take what was available. And I was like, so how many last weeks in a row have there been and that was a stretch of like nine or 10 weeks in a row where the corn Ferry tour was on, or maybe it was 10 out of 11 or something like that. I don't think people realize the physically grueling element of it. Like you mentioned, cause I was like, are you going to take a week off? And he said, no, I got behind the eight ball at the beginning and I've missed too many cuts since I won. I got to keep at it, but it's, it's yeah. what Monday, the day off when you get to the next city, Tuesday practice on Wednesday practice round or pro-am if you get in and then you go and do it all over again the next week. That's a lot of golf. It is. It's, and it's not just, it's a lot of golf. I mean, it's his work. It's your work. It's just different. Like I think people love, like people are probably listening to your podcast right now or guys that love to play golf. Like, damn, I wish I could do that. It's different. I mean, it's, it's just different. It's not, it's not the same. It's a grind. It's your job. And, and like this week, Hayden played very well. I think he finished 30th, but he didn't get what he deserved out of the week. I mean, he made four double bogeys. And I would say like, if you take those away and I hate saying that, but, but if you take those away, like he's top five. So like, he's not missing it by much. It's just like all your ducks have to be in a row for it to happen. And then you can't take a week off because that could have been your chance that it could happen. And especially as he's starting to run out of time here, like, you know, he's not playing bad enough. And like, I would not be surprised because whenever Hayden has to do something and, I'll, I'll say there are two stories. One is at Tupelo in the pros tomorrow. He's on 15. He's got to make two birdies coming in to win the tournament. I told him that on 15 T, he makes two birdies. Then in the University of Florida tournament, when I was out watching him, said same thing. We're on. We're on 16, dude. You got a birdie like you know. You got a birdie. Two of these holes coming in. 
to win. He drives it into a divot on 16, hits it out of a divot to like eight feet, makes it, drives the 17th hole, which is a downhill par four, drives on the green, two putts it, makes par to win on the last. And that's like probably one of the, the strongest fields. I mean, at Florida, Vandy, like all those, you know, Will Gordon, all those guys were there. And he did it. So like, I really believe that he's going to get it done by the end of the year just because he has to. I think, you know, and I think we, we're, I, we just talk about seeing the light, like he's the opposite of it. Like he encourages it, like he draws it in and then he gets it done. And there was another sequence that, and he may not have known exactly what he had to do, but he's out there in Utah where he still got partial status. And I think he had to birdie like four in a row or three out of five or something like that mm-hmm. to kind of get enough points to improve it and then get to the next week. And you kind of mentioned it's like, he didn't know exactly because I think he made the birdie on 18 and he saw his caddy go nuts and was like, what was that about? And he's like, well, you had to make that. I didn't want to tell you type of thing. But like, like you mentioned, yeah. back up against the wall, he does it. And I don't, I don't want to keep you too long, but I had two other questions That's right. before, uh, yeah. before we get, before we have one junior golf thing, get out of here. You mentioned the consistency and the grind of it. Chad Ramey, kid from the same area. And I know yeah. he was a little bit older, but I don't know how yeah. familiar you are with Chad and kind of his I've game. Met, I've met Chad a few times. And, yeah. um, you know, he's, he's a good dude. And I'll also say I've met Allie McDonald a few times. They're both from Fulton. I mean, yeah. somebody needs to go over there and, you know, do, do a feature on that golf course because that golf course is like one of the – I can't say the worst, but it is one of the most quirky, weird, nine-hole just – but you know what? It's produced two people that have won at the highest level. I mean, Allie's won a few times and, and, and Chad's won on the Corn Ferry Tour. And – Chad absolutely wears it out. And when I, I, when I saw what Chad did this year, like, it doesn't surprise me, but, like, and, you know, he's getting a little bit better every year. He's just hitting those stair steps, getting better every year. And to show the, the, the level of predictability every week that he has, like, every time when I'm looking at the scores, I don't have to go down far to see Chad's name any week. I mean, it's like he just turns in two under, three under, and at the end of the day, you keep turning in two unders and three unders at the end of the week, like you're at 10, 11, 12. And, and it was cool to see, like, it would stink. I'm not going to say it's going to stink for him to get to the PGA Tour without winning because that, that's something special in itself. If you can go through the Corn Ferry Tour and never win but get a card, like, that's, that's crazy, the level of, of predictability you have. But, like, I was happy to see him get the victory to, like, you know, put the cherry on the icing on the cake. He's a good dude. He's a good kid. Family seems like they're good people, um, like most people from Mississippi are. Um, you know, they are. They're all good people there. That's one I miss living in the South big time. They're they're the best people in the world. But um, Chad is Chad's a, a really good guy. He deserves everything that he's worked for. And I know BJ's his coach, and they and he deserves everything that he's worked for. Uh, I'm happy just to see uh, my favorite thing. I always will say seeing potential realized and seeing. Chad's been at it a little longer than Hayden has, but seeing, like, he finally get what he deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And you probably just already answered it. But, uh, you know, he goes through – that. I think he played 36 events. He missed three cuts in this wraparound thing. I think he finished top 25 or better 26 of the times if my crappy math is correct. Yeah. And, you know, he, like you mentioned, it's almost a, a more of a testament to his consistency that he graduates to the tour and locks up a card early – without having a win, but the win comes to validate it. But it just goes to show yeah. you, you talk about predictability. He's probably mm-hmm. a pretty good example of that to some degree, right? Because 
He doesn't have the win. He already locks up PGA Tour card, but he was PGA Tour bound, and his only other win before that was his junior year of college. Like, there's something to be said to being kind of machine-like consistency or predictability, yeah. you mentioned it. Yeah, it, but I will say, though, like, you got to win. You have to be a winner. And that's why I think, you know, if he made it to the PGA Tour next year without winning, like, yeah, man, like, that's the goal. Like, when you're on the Corn Ferry Tour, it's to get to the PGA Tour. But to do it without winning is kind of like – it leaves a little – I would think it would leave a little bit of bad taste in your mouth. But having him get that victory, I think, validates the reason he's going to the PGA Tour. And and winning, to me, is still super, super important because you don't want to be that guy that gets in that gets in the arena and is battling right there at the end and always falls short because, like, it starts wearing on you after a while. You, you got you to gotta get it done. You got to get the dub. And, and you know, you got to – and he did it. I mean, that's all credit to him. And that golf course, I was talking with uh, Hayden's caddy this week. I mean, he, he's Hayden, uh, Hayden's caddy, Brian, is a good dude. Uh, Brian is awesome. He's Hayden's best advocate, man. His caddy is awesome. But they flew from one edge of the country, from San Diego all the way to Portland, Oregon, as far away as you could. And maybe this will be a question for another day, but how screwed up the Corn Ferry Tour is that you get no points for playing in the U.S. Open. I wrote about you take the week, week of Wichita. Total bullshit. You said it better than I would say it, but it's absolute tragedy that these corn fairy guys. So you get you get PG, you get FedEx Cup points for it. You get race to Dubai points for it, and you get zero top you know rate or top twenty five for corn fairy. That's bullcrap. You know, and the one thing that's even more jacked up is they're taking this week off, but they don't take the week of the U.S. Open off. I think they took the week of the Masters off, like. You know, there ain't any Corn Ferry players playing the Masters outside of Will Zalatoris, who doesn't have that to go back happen. to the Corn Ferry. It doesn't happen. So, like, you know, I think the PGA Tour, and I'm, I'm, this isn't the first time this has happened either, but, you know, it, they need to do better by the Corn Ferry guys and, and at least give them some sort of points, uh, even if it's just comparable to a Corn Ferry event, although I think it should be double because I think the fields are a lot deeper. But the, the PGA Tour definitely needs to address what – I was texting a bunch of my friends from Tupelo saying, man, I'm not sure like Hayden needs to go to the U S open. I, I was like, they're like looking at me like I'm nuts. I'm like, you know, after he had qualified, I thought they had, I thought the corn fairy had the week off. And then his dad called me and goes, no man, like they're playing Wichita. I'm like, Oh man. Like, okay. Well, I mean the goal for us when we started the year at corn fairy was to make it to the PGA tour. How does playing in the U S open help Hayden's chance to play the PGA Tour, it doesn't. Not one bit. It does. It, it doesn't. It actually makes it more difficult because he takes a week off of earning points on the Corn Ferry Tour, and that's bullcrap. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually wrote about that the week after Hayden went there and missed the cut. Because it's like, of course you're going to go to the U.S. Open, but do you actually need to? Like you said, it's like you know, whether he makes the cut or not, whatever. He teeing it up at the U.S. Open on Thursday is a calculated risk, given his standing at the Corn Ferry Tour. It, it, like you meant, you already covered it. It, it makes no sense. It, it's, 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 I mean, the PGA Tour, those people running it aren't dumb. And I think they know there's some sort of issue there. And I get it. I mean, like, to a point where, like, you know, maybe a sponsor says, look, we want to have an event here on this day. Well, yeah, I mean, you take the money. But they got to find a way to make it right for those guys. They, they got to find a way to make it right for them. And, and that's, that's the end of the story. I don't know what that solution is. I mean, I could offer a few of them, but I mean, I'm not on that. That's not my, that's not my, not, not my job, but um, they, they need to do better by the corn fairy guys. Like Dylan Wu is probably in a better spot to get his card than Hayden is. I mean, he's a couple spots in front of him, 
But Dylan Wu, I think, finished like in the you know top 25 of the U.S. Open and gets no points for it. Um, probably gets a pretty decent paycheck, which is good. But I mean, like it doesn't do anything long term for him. Absolutely. Um, and you can't even watch the damn events on TV now until you get to August, which is just really annoying as well. But anyway, like you mentioned, probably a story for another day. Last Hayden question I had before yep. a couple of just junior golf things before you get out of here. He goes down obviously to Florida, you know, last man in the field, well documented. Just from your vantage point, what is that week like for you in the moment that he makes the putt? Uh, that's a, that was, that's a funny story actually. So I had my member member at plantation Bay the same day as Hayden's final round. And, um, we were actually in the shootout of the member member as the back nine was going on. And we were on the 17th hole of our shootout. And Hayden was like, I, I mean, I can't remember it's three shots behind maybe with like five holes ago. So finally, like, dude, finally I could stop following this, you know, like <laughs> at least he's in the next week, you know, and it, it puts him because, like, right at, at that time, I mean, we can go through the long story about how he didn't get into that event, which he should have been in there. But um, at least he's in the next week, and then they have the reshuffle. So, like, his numbers are going to get up even higher, and he's going to be good for the rest of the year, undoubtedly. Like, we thought he was good for the rest of the year getting into this event. But so I finally put my phone away and didn't have to follow it anymore. So I went ahead and did my, you know, last two holes of the shootout. And I'm sitting in my office breaking up all of our Calcutta money. And all of a sudden, my phone's like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, you know, he's got, he's got a putt to win. You know, I'm like, what? And I hadn't even followed it. And then so I, I turn it on, and then uh, I see as a Kevin from, uh, from the Corn Ferry Tour started uh, putting on the live stream, which was like, they should only do Corn Ferry playoffs in the stream just for the crappy quality of it. Just it gives it just another sense of, like, the mini tour life. But um, I remember I'm sitting in the office with my assistant at the time, Ulrika, and, uh, and, like, he hits this putt, and he made it. And I remember, like, throwing my phone on the ground and just, like, screaming as loud as I could. I, I, couldn't, believe, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I knew he was going to make it because that's just what he does. I knew when he got in the playoff he was going to win. It wasn't like I didn't believe it was going to happen. I just couldn't believe I just actually got to see it. And, um, I mean, it was so cool. I couldn't, I couldn't even think anymore. Like I could, I had to put the money away, put it in the door. I came back my next, my next day was the day off. It was Monday. And so like, I'm just going to come in tomorrow and do it and break up this money. But like my phone started blowing up. I couldn't imagine what his phone was like, but I mean, I, my, I couldn't talk the rest of the night. I was screaming so loud. And I was so happy for him just to see, you know, he deserved it. And, and I'm sure everybody, when they win, they all say they deserve it, but like he deserved it. And um, that just goes to show you there are guys out there that deserve a chance. Um, you know, Hayden didn't, didn't get given that chance either. I mean, he earned it by, you know, being where he was on the list. It wasn't like he got some sappy sponsor, you know, where somebody paid for him to get in the event. Like, he earned it. But I think the best part about it, too, was I think he was 70th in putting that week. One like, you know, it just goes to validate everything I was telling Hayden because, like, I don't want him to get weighed down on, you know, what his putting was like this week or that week, he hits it so damn good that he could finish 70th in putting and win. And, and that's, that's the thing. And so when he played in the U.S. Open, even the week before the BMW, his putter, he got a new one, and it, it just, like, felt right. The speed was good. And, and, like, I really feel like the rest of the year is going to be pretty good because he got a putter that he really, really likes, and he hits it so damn good. If you can win hit, finishing 70th in putting, you're, like, you're – extremely high level ball striker it was a wild wild 
wild way to win a tournament. Like I, I couldn't agree more. As you mentioned, if someone deserves it. It was certainly him. And you know, yep. you know, and he spent like a total like twelve seconds over the putt. He's like, I didn't even take a practice run. He's like, I just wanted to hit it. I knew exactly what it did. I wanted to go in. I mean, never, never lacking in confidence and self belief, which is a hard thing to maintain a lot of times when shit's not going your way. But yeah. Um, before I let you get out of here, I just had a couple random, call it rapid fire. That's like the worst podcast segment in history. But yeah, do it. Um, uh, here we go. I had a couple written down. Biggest myth about the golf swing. Um, I'll say the biggest myth about golf in general would be drive for show, putt for dough. Oh, okay. It's putting, kind of putting, putting is not – I mean, it's important, but it's not that important. You, you go look at the top ten people in driving on the PGA Tour and look at the top ten in putting. And then figure out which bank account you want. <laughs> That's okay. Great way to articulate that. I, uh, all right. So if there's anything, is there anything you would change about the, not junior golf in general, but the junior golf into the recruitment process as someone that went through it and then kind of coaching someone that was a little bit of a late bloomer, is there anything you would want differently done or, or tell anyone? Yeah. I mean, I think AJGA is a great organization and they do lots of good for junior golf, but I'll say it's a big but. I miss a little bit of the local junior scene. I think, you know, I, I think it's wildly expensive. And, I mean, I can't tell a fortune unless I was a kid to have the opportunity to travel. I played AJGAs. And when I played AJGA, there was it was like the PGA Tour. You had to travel all over the country because there was only one. And at least now with the AJGA, they're a little bit more regionalized than they are national. Back when I played, like, there was one event every week. So I traveled a lot. It's expensive, man. You need to have the resources. And there's a lot of kids out there that, you know, their parents are probably doing okay, but they're not going to be out there, you know, spending, you know, $600 on a hotel, you know, $40 on a, I mean, we're going to have an AJG at our course here in Urbana in a few weeks. I mean, like yards books, 40 bucks. And like, all of a sudden you, you realize like you're in this thing, $1,500 a week, you know, and, and I think, I think to me, if I could change anything about junior golf is, is probably that. Um, I, I, I wish like I wish kids were happier staying more in their local scene and maybe their state scene. Um, but, but I get it. I mean, like like anything, I think the biggest threat to country clubs now, if you kind of look at it that way, is is travel baseball. I mean, when I was when I was growing up, when the dads would be out playing at the country clubs on the weekend, the kid would be playing on a Thursday night in their rec league or whatever, or Saturday, you know, evening. But now, you know, families are traveling like in Tupelo. I'm going to Memphis this weekend or I'm going to going to, you know, Birmingham for, for a baseball tournament. Like, I mean, I, I wish kids would get a chance to play more sports close to home. That would be the thing that, that I would like. And I would like to see more athletes play golf, not golfers. I'd like to see a kid who played baseball, you know, maybe a basketball player, a tennis player. You know, I, I mean, I want my kid to play golf, but I want him to play other stuff, too. And um, I'm a, I'll probably, you know, you'll laugh at me 10 years from now when my kids playing travel baseball, but I'm going to try my best to make sure that my kid tries to play stuff closer to home. A little bit intertwined with it, but just because you hit, I was going to say just your average weekend warrior, but I'll change it a little bit. Advice to the younger kid that's 12, 13, maybe a little bit younger than that. There's the point where you're trying to get serious and think about doing this in college and getting serious about golf. Is there anything you would tell them starting into it? Smash it. Like, just smash. Like, learn how to hit the ball 300 yards. Like, I can teach you how to read a green. I can teach you, you know, how to chip and pitch the golf ball. Now, I mean, like, some of those skills, somebody may have a little bit better touch than another. Um, but I think to a certain point, you can be average. 
uh, in putting, and you can be somewhat average in chipping and pitching um, and be a good college golfer. I think hitting par fives and twos, making birdies, having wedges into more holes is the most important thing. I think, you know, monitoring your club head speed as a kid and making sure it gets faster and faster and faster is super important. Training your body to learn how to go faster. Um, and I mean, you can't neglect chipping and putting. I'm not going to say like, don't ever practice it, but yeah, yeah, you absolutely have to practice it, but, but, but learn how to smash the golf ball. And if you're, if you're with an instructor who says, slow down, find another one. Like I want somebody who can absolutely murder it. I love to hear that. That's uh, great stuff. Chris, I really appreciate this. This was awesome. I didn't even tell you how long I was going to keep you. I promise the plan was not oh. an hour, but there was, I just keep having more questions. Man, I really appreciate this. This was awesome stuff. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime soon when Buckley wins on tour. Yeah, it'll be sooner than later. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.